Hey, it's Joel. Before we get started, just a quick heads up about today's show. This story was originally broadcast back in 2016. It's probably as close to a true crime investigation as this show will ever get. And also, it's the story that first made me think, you know, that maybe a podcast about numbers could be a thing. So I guess it's kind of like the sum of all parts origin story. There's a short update at the end of the episode, but for now, as originally broadcast, this is an unusual pattern. During the English winter of 2003-2004, something sinister was afoot at the Horton General Hospital. BBC Radio 4. It's midnight. The news with Chris Aldridge. A nurse who gave deadly drugs to patients has been found guilty of murdering two of them. This story takes place in Banbury, a market town in Oxfordshire, about an hour and a half northeast of London. A nurse who deliberately caused respiratory arrest in his patients so that he could help revive them has been found guilty of murdering two of his victims. That winter, 18 patients admitted to accident and emergency, or A&E, suddenly and unexpectedly stopped breathing. Hospital staff might expect one, maybe two of these incidents a month, but 18 in two and a bit months? Something was up. Doctors at the Horton General Hospital in Banbury were bewildered by the series of emergencies among patients admitted between December 2003 and February 2004. So hospital staff started pulling case notes and examining staff rosters, and before long, their attention was drawn to a young nurse, Benjamin Gein. Gein had been on duty each time one of these patients had collapsed. After investigating, they discovered that Gein was a common factor and called the police. And in February 2004, Gein was arrested as he arrived at work. When he was arrested on his way to work, he was carrying a used syringe. Tests on the fleece he had been wearing at the time found evidence of a potentially lethal muscle relaxant. On May 10th, 2006, Benjamin Gein was sentenced to a minimum of 38 years in prison for two counts of murder and 15 counts of grievous bodily harm. He was 25 years old. Ben Gein started studying nursing in 1999 and, by all accounts, he was the kind of student who did well at the practical side of things but sometimes struggled academically. I requested an interview with Ben, but that request was denied by the UK Ministry of Justice and the governor at Longlarton Prison, where Ben's currently serving out his sentence. I did, however, manage to speak with his dad, Mick Gein. Ben was a very outgoing guy. He loved outdoor life. He loved adventure. He liked challenges. By November 2002, Ben was working at the Horton General Hospital. He was initially a care assistant and he was finishing his qualifications. And once he uh, got qualified, he applied for a nurse's job in the A&E department. Ben got this job and registered as a first-level nurse in April 2003. He's very hard-working, and in that department, the A&E department where he works, he was constantly volunteering for overtime. He just loved to work. And this rings true based on snippets I got from the source material. Colleagues of Ben's referred to him as a committed and enthusiastic member of staff, although there were concerns that his confidence outstripped his competence. Leading up to the rest, he told me that it was a very hectic department. He was getting opportunities to get into some very demanding situations and was learning a lot. He never told me of any difficulty he was having there. He just said that he's really enjoying it and there was a great opportunity to further his career there. But life at Horton wasn't without its difficulties for Ben. More on that later. 
On Thursday, February 5, 2004, events set in motion that would change Ben's life forever. That day, in a single day, two patients went into life-threatening respiratory arrest shortly after arriving at A&E. Like I said before, staff might expect one or at most two of these events per month. But two in a day? Suspicions were raised. Stephen Smith, the consultant physician working in the Horton A&E that day, recalled bringing staff together to discuss these events. Quote, I held an impromptu meeting of minds at the bedside to explore all possibilities. There were up to 30 people present. The discussions ended up taking a wider path and a pattern began to emerge, whereby similar unexplained events in the A&E were being included. There was some acceptance that this was not the first time over the past few weeks that we were left scratching our heads in search of an explanation for events that had occurred in the A&E department. End quote. The next morning, Friday, February 6, 2004, some of these staff members ran their suspicions up the flagpole. They reported their concerns to a bunch of the hospital bigwigs, including the head of clinical risk and the director of the hospital, and a serious incident investigation was initiated. Basically, this investigation reviewed patient case notes and staffing records. The team worked over the weekend and identified 18 patients who had suddenly and unexpectedly stopped breathing after visiting A&E over the past couple of months. And over the next two years, right up to Gein's trial, this number of reported cases fluctuates from 18 to 10, then to 25, and then back to 18. But again, we'll have more on that later. It was this team that identified Gein as the common factor in these respiratory arrest events. He'd been on duty at every incident. As it happened, Gein was off work sick on Friday the 6th and hadn't been rostered on over the weekend. So, on Monday, February 9th, 2004, Benjamin Gein was arrested as he arrived for work, a mere four days after the collapse of the two patients that sparked this investigation. Gein was wearing nursing scrubs and a fleecy jacket. When the arresting officers searched him, they found a syringe in his jacket pocket. The pocket was reported to be slightly damp and cool. In a panic, Gein had emptied the contents of the syringe into the pocket. Not a good look. Gein claimed to have inadvertently taken the syringe home after his last shift and was returning it, trying to cover his tracks before anyone found out. Police would go on to search Gein and his girlfriend at the time's apartments and at both locations they found a bunch of prescription-only medications that eventually they traced back to the hospital. Gein owned up to stealing these meds for personal use, but again, not a good look. The police cautioned him for theft, but to be honest, at the time, that was the least of his worries. Gein was taken into police custody for questioning and he agreed to answer any and all questions put to him. He admitted to seeing each of the 18 patients named by the serious incident investigation, but denied any wrongdoing. To this day, Gein denies all charges against him. He also stated that he didn't suspect any of his colleagues of any wrongdoing. During questioning, he told police, quote, I seem to have a jinx, end quote. When asked to explain that remark, he said that it, quote, just seems to be every shift of mine, I get more sick patients than other people, end quote. 
Two years later, on May 10, 2006, Gein is sentenced to a minimum of 30 years for two counts of murder and eight years for 15 counts of grievous bodily harm. A team of 40 detectives worked on this case, drawing on advice from officers who had investigated the crimes of Dr Harold Shipman. Detective Superintendent Andy Taylor led the investigation into Gein. He described the nurse's behaviour as narcissistic. Ben Gein abused this position of trust. We may never know what motivated him to select and poison his victims. It is clear that he wanted to be the centre of attention and in order to fuel this desire, brought some of the patients to the brink of death and coldly murdered two of them. Let's skip forward to 2009. Gein's assembled a new legal team to appeal his conviction and sentencing. Reading through the court docs from this appeal process, Gein's representation comes off a bit shambolic. On a few occasions, they're scolded by the judge for their lack of preparation. Not what you want to hear after three years in jail. Gein's original trial and this appeal dug deep into the medical detail for each of the 18 patients he was accused of drugging. On a case-by-case basis, the prosecution and defence, each supported by a cast of medical experts, argued the toss about what could have caused these patients to suddenly stop breathing and how likely it was that Ben was responsible. The conversations are super technical and really difficult to understand especially if you're not a medical expert. But late in the appeal process, something interesting happened. Professor David Dennison, one of these medical experts, almost inadvertently identified a much more fundamental issue with the case. Think back, right at the top of the show, what was it that raised hospital staff's suspicions in the first place? the unusual pattern of respiratory arrest events, the idea that there were just heaps more of these than usual. But what if this unusual pattern wasn't that unusual at all? Dennison raised the issue that, quote, the central plank to the prosecution case was that there is a pattern. Respiratory arrests are rare. Gein had the opportunity to harm the patients and so it follows that he was responsible for the harm. This is clearly a statistical issue and requires statistical expertise to address it. Absent a proper statistical basis, opinion evidence is valueless and misleading. End quote. So Gein's defence called in statistician Professor Jane Hutton from the University of Warwick. One of my main interests is simply trying to improve the quality of evidence so that the judges and the juries have got a better chance of reaching the right decision. And what I'm interested in doing is discussing the quality of that evidence and explaining that evidence to people. I'm making no statements whatsoever about anyone's guilt or innocence in this. And this is pretty much the stance adopted by everyone you'll hear from today. It's my stance. None of this is a comment on Gein's guilt or innocence. This is a process discussion. Jane Hutton. So the basic claim was that it was unusual to have so many cases of patients coming into A&E, accident and emergency, and then collapsing with breathing difficulties. What I tried to do with that was to also to explain how important it is to think what we mean by usual or unusual. For example, if you say there's an unusual pattern of cars going down the street, 
You have to say, do we mean we are or are not going to allow for weekdays, for time of day, and so on. So before you can describe something as unusual, you have to have decided what is usual, and you have to think about what kinds of variation are we used to. So we're used to more traffic during the day than night. We're used to rush hours, differences between weekday and weeknight. We have to allow for that. To say unusual, we need to be specific about what we mean by usual. So Hutton looked to the previous December, the December before the events of this case, to try and establish a baseline for a spiritual arrest. Gein wasn't working at A&E in that December, in December 2002. And yet there were five incidents in December 2002. Now that's before Ben Gein was working at this particular hospital. There were six incidents in December 2003, once he was working there, and there was a claim that all of those six December 2003 cases were due to Ben Gein. What's really important is to stop and think about what assumptions are we making here? Okay, the rate of natural cases, shall we say, in December 2002 was five. So it's reasonable to think that's going to be the same rate in December 2003 because we don't know of any magic bullet cure before then. So in fact, it would be much more reasonable to think that six cases in December 2003 is completely consistent with what we saw in December 2002. And for all six cases to have been artificially caused by Ben Gein is very, very unlikely. So what Hutton's saying here is that the December before Gein starts working in A&E, five people suffer respiratory arrest, and it's not at all considered suspicious. And yet, the very next December, once he is working there, there are six cases, and all of them are considered suspicious. Remember earlier when I mentioned that the number of reported cases of respiratory arrest fluctuated throughout the investigation? Well, according to Hutton... This is even more cause for concern. The evidence that I know about that is presented in court seems to go rather strangely because, first of all, you have 10 or 11 suspicious cases. Then you have 18 cases. Okay, you might find some more. But then the number goes back down to 10 or 11. And so that means something that had been explained is now not explained. How did you determine that your explanation was not valid? Don't forget, you've got the difficult situation where you're looking back in time. And then there were 25 cases, so you've suddenly got a whole lot more. Were those 25 cases because you were now saying, we're going to cast the net very widely and find everything we can? And then it goes back down to 18. And I think in the court case, a couple of those were also dropped. You have to be a lot more precise than that if you're going to really be effective at understanding what's happening finding the cause or the most likely cause of an outbreak of any kind. Indeed, Hutton argues that there might have been some confirmation bias at play during the hospital's investigation. For example, if you knew that a particular nurse was on, you might view the case notes differently than if that person wasn't on. Especially if you had reason to. Remember earlier when I mentioned that Ben was having difficulties at work? Well, it turns out that long before the investigation, long before anyone had any suspicions of patients collapsing in A&E, Ben wasn't exactly winning popularity contests at Horton General. Here's McGean again. Before his arrest, there was some animosity in his department. He'd actually got the nickname of Bev Allett there, which refers to the nurse Beverly Allett's. 
He he was working away there. Can you describe what, who Beverly Elliott was just for the... Uh, Beverly Elliott was a nurse convicted of killing people. There seemed to me to be some kind of a locker room talk and some kind of witch hunt went on. And the end results of this witch hunt was that Ben was constantly being looked at and every time something went wrong, they were looking for a reason why he made it go wrong. A lot of these things were actually going on behind Ben's back. Ben wouldn't have been aware of a lot of this chat and some of it he thought was just black humour that happens in like the fire brigade, the police and the kind of hospital A&E departments. But he did sometimes come home and say he'd had a busy day, he'd had a lot of problem patients, and he'd also indicate that the department at times was very short-staffed, which made it even more difficult to uh, perform efficiently. Horton General Hospital refused my request for an interview. Hutton's report into Gein's case garnered the support of a bunch of prominent statisticians, including Sir David Spiegelhalter, Professor Stephen Sen, Professor Sheila Bird and Professor Norman Fenton. Fenton had been somewhat aware of the Gein case at the time of the trial, but only focused his attention after colleagues pointed out that it might have involved an exaggerated coincidence, a special interest of his. A woman in the US a few years ago actually won the jackpot lottery, that's six out of six numbers in a 49-ball lottery, twice within about five years. The press loved this. They were saying this is a one in 200 billion chance. It's, it's just an incredible, incredible coincidence, right? And yeah, it's a classic misunderstanding of probability and statistics. What they don't understand is that the one in 200 billion is the probability that a single named person will in two consecutive games of the lottery win the jackpot twice. But that's not what we're interested in here. What you've got to think about is how many millions of players are playing multiple games of the lottery over many years. It turns out that in the US alone, over, I think, about a 15-year period, we calculated that the probability that at least one person would win the lottery twice was actually over 50%. And when you actually extrapolate it to the whole world, it turns out that in a five-year period, it's almost certain that someone in the world is going to win a jackpot lottery twice. So it's not actually an incredibly unusual event. So it's an unusual event on an individual level, exactly. but when you zoom out, it's less of an unusual exactly. event. Exactly, and that's the phenomenon that we see here in the, in the Gein case. What you've got is apparently a highly unusual sequence of events happening at this particular hospital. Now, of course, if you looked at that individually, what is the probability that this particular nurse would be present at 18 respiratory arrest events at the same hospital within such a short period of time, then of course for that individual, the probability is incredibly low. It really is like a very, very unusual event. But think about any sequence of two month periods over let's say a number of years. And think about the number of different hospitals in the UK having a similar number of two-month periods and observing the respiratory events. Then again, when you extrapolate this out, as in the lottery example, it turns out that in the UK, where there are something like 2,400 NHS hospitals, over, say, any given four-year period, it's actually almost certain that you will observe in at least one of those hospitals, one of these sequences of events. In fact, it's over 99% probability with some reasonable assumptions about the rate of these events, okay? In fact, it's even worse than that because actually the expected number of those sort of coincidences is something like eight. You know, it's not even that one is unusual. You'd expect to see about eight sequences like that in a four-year period over the whole of the UK. 
the idea in the Gein case that I guess the the hospital and then the the police and then the media found unfathomable was that not only were there this high number, this unusually high number of these events, but that one nurse could be present at each event. So how does that factor into to your calculations? Yeah, so we factored that in as well. So this is a little bit more tricky and there's a little bit more subjectivity in the analysis that I did here. But think of it this way. In most, in most hospitals, the nurses tend to be on duty for you know, at least 50 to 70% of the recorded, let's say, time. And you've got a lot of nurses at each of those hospitals. That's the key thing. So for any given nurse to be present at all of those events is still, again, a very, very low probability. But what you've got is, let's say, 100 nurses at any given hospital, let's say, where one of these sequences of events has been observed. Actually, again, there's quite a high probability that at least one of them would have been present at all in this case, 18 such events. So Ben Gein essentially won the lotto twice, but the wrong kind of lottery. That's the perfect analogy. That, you know, these things are going to, not by coincidence, but actually by statistical certainty, actually do happen. And when they happen to an individual, it looks like an incredibly suspicious, unusual event. Okay, but... These things happen, and in this case, it could be. I don't know the the medical details of the case. I'm looking at it purely from a statistical viewpoint. And from a purely statistical viewpoint, this should not have been sufficient to start an investigation. I think the difficulty is we're all capable of being biased. If we're honest, how many of us haven't thought the train's always late when I'm on it? And what's actually happening is we remember the times we were annoyed because the train was late, If I actually go away and look at the evidence, it's probably not true. And so to say, well, an opinion is worth more than collecting evidence, I think is very unwise. I think one should look for both. Not because I'm saying statisticians are infallible and other people aren't. What I'm saying is statisticians know we're fallible and we would like other people to recognise that. It's very difficult to keep accurate records of rare events. It's very easy with things like that to get it wrong. But the appeal court didn't agree with Hutton or Fenton's analyses. They argued that there was no need to statistically validate the opinion evidence of experts. That is, it's perfectly valid for hospital staff who spend their lives working in A&E to say what's unusual and what's not. The court claimed that, quote, academic statistical opinion, however distinguished, is divorced from the actual facts, end quote. They also suggested that there was, quote, a wealth of material pointing to the applicant's guilt from which the jury would have drawn their own safe and proper inferences, end quote. So the appeal was rejected. And you can imagine that the hospital and the police, they're going to agree with this. That, sure, it's one thing to argue from a purely statistical point of view, but that these crimes don't play out against a purely statistical point of view. It's the reason none of the statisticians wanted to pass judgement on Gein's guilt or innocence. There's more to this than numbers. These were real people, patients, healthcare professionals in the high-pressure environment of A&E, reacting to a lot more than raw data. But what were they reacting to? Dr Wendy Hesketh has a law degree and a PhD in law and criminology. She's currently writing a book about what she calls medico-crime. 
She was also part of the legal team in the Shipman Inquiry, an investigation into the crimes of Dr Harold Shipman, the most prolific serial killer on record. The inquiry confirmed that Shipman killed 218 of his patients, although it's suspected that that number could be as high as 250. Shipman was arrested in 1998 and sentenced to life in prison in 2000. He hanged himself in his cell on January 13, 2004, just 23 days before those two patients suffered respiratory arrest at Horton General and the investigation that would eventually condemn Gein kicked off. Hesketh argues that everything changed after Shipman. The Gein's case, and many like it, have played out against the background of Shipman hysteria. Since the Shipman inquiry, as soon as there's an accusation, you've got to think dirty. And if you don't, you could find yourself having to answer as to why you didn't do a full investigation. She points out that in the case of Ben Gein, apart from those two respiratory arrest events that sparked the hospital investigation, none of the others were considered suspicious at the time. Beforehand, those medical records were accepted as perfectly lawful. They weren't flagged up to anyone, no one was suspicious, no one thought that there was any untoward behaviour or that there was anyone who had been unlawfully killed. So all of a sudden you've got this team who are actually potential witnesses themselves because they had all worked at the same time as Ben Gein and they're talking to each other and reinforcing their own suspicions and then they're looking for evidence and we work in an accident and emergency department where of course people die all the time, that's why they come to hospital the reason that they're here is because they need urgent medical attention. So anytime someone's died, whenever he's been on duty, let's pull their records. And then, oh, lo and behold, those people have died when Ben Gein's been on duty. That's it. That's true. We've got the evidence. He's an actual killer. Hesketh argues that everyone involved in the prosecution and conviction of Ben Gein, his colleagues at the hospital, the police, the medical experts at court, they all would have had the recommendations of the Shipman Inquiry at the back of their minds the entire time. I would be very worried to be a health professional in this day and age, not to cast a sideways glance at my colleagues wondering if they're the next Shipman, but worried that would I be accused, wrongly accused of something that I didn't do and could I be facing the rest of my life in prison for a crime that I didn't commit? In your opinion, did Ben Gein get a fair trial? No, Ben Gein did not get a fair trial. It's not my position to say whether Ben Gein is innocent or guilty because I don't know whether people were unlawfully killed at that hospital and I don't know whether Ben Gein unlawfully killed them or not. But I can say, based on my experience in working in a number of medical crime cases, that he did not receive a fair trial. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's been over three years since this story first went to air. So I called up Ben's dad, Mick Gein, to get an update. Ben's case has been through a protracted appeal process that's still ongoing. And while Mick and the family hold out hope for this appeal process, they're frustrated by how long it's taking. 
So, you know, Ben's sitting in prison for 13 years now, and another three years has passed, and we've made no progress, and it's a positive that they are moving forward, but it's, it's far too late. In the past year, Ben has also moved to a new prison, one hundreds of miles from where his family is based. When we visit Ben now, we leave at 7 in the morning and we get home at 10 at night. Distance will never stop us. You know, wherever they put Ben, we will always travel. We will always make sure family will see him. We can't travel as often because it's so far away, but um, we take turns. So his sisters go, his brothers go. We take the grandchildren along and um, visit as much as we can. Every time we go to visit him there, we see a little bit of him disappearing. You know, the longer it goes on, the more it's affecting him. Some of All Parts is produced by me, Joel Werner. Jonathan Webb is science editor and the sound design is by me and Mark Don. This story originally appeared on the ABC Radio's Health Report with Dr Norman Swan. It is, in my heavily biased opinion, the best place to cut through the medical jargon and find out what the latest health research means for you, the consumer. Search for The Health Report wherever you get your podcasts. Editorial support for my original round of reporting was from Lynn Malcolm, the sound engineer on the original story and on today's remix, and indeed on every episode of Soap so far, has been Mark Don. But sad news, this is Mark's last day with the show. He's retiring to, I don't know, buy a dog, spend some quality time with his record collection, and pointedly not mix this show anymore. Look, Mark, don't leave. This is my final plea. Well, if you put it like that, I'll stay. I'm going. I'm off. See ya. There's a link to a feature article I wrote about the Ben Keen case on the website. It's abc.net.au slash soap. I'm taking a few months to produce a new season of stories from the world of numbers. Coming up, there's stories of potatoes and football and tomato sauce on the internet. It'll all be worth the wait, I promise. But for now, that's it. <laughs> <laughs>